Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Tyler Cowan. I heard recently you were on a podcast and someone said, uh, Tyler doesn't need any introduction. You know, I hate when someone says that about me. So uh, although I agree you don't need any introduction, in case someone's listening and they don't really know, also so that you know that I know, Tyler's one of the most accomplished people, not only has come on the podcast, but who I've met. He is the author of many books about a wide ranging version of subjects through the prism of being a trained PhD level economist, great chess player, uh, though he might say not great, sub great, but a great chess player compared to you, if you're listening, uh, unless you're Magnus checking in. And Magnus, if you are, hey, dude, uh, thanks for being here. I have no reason to think Magnus has ever uh, listened. I think he's, he'd already be bored. He knows what I'm gonna say before I say it. Tyler is a professor. He runs various organizations. He's a terrific writer and has one of my favorite podcasts, Conversations with Tyler. I was recently on the podcast and had a blast talking to him and um, immediately asked him to join me on this podcast. Tyler, thank you. And we're in, we're in person, which is super fun. Tyler, thanks for being here. Hi, Magnus, and great to be here, Brian. I thought a lot about how I want to have this conversation. I decided that I wanted to treat it like an Oxford tutorial. Great. Like you're an Oxford Don. I and thought you were the Oxford Don. You're in this today, right now, you're the Don. And uh, because I, yes, oh, uh, I'm the Don if it's because I'm, I'm being your interlocutor and asking you the questions, but, but instead it's early on, I've just arrived uh, at Oxford and I am coming to see you to ask you some questions I, we're having a conversation where I want to learn because I realized um, you are, have been on so many different things. A lot of the biography, we'll touch on it, but I just want to look through your eyes a bit at, at the world and your experience of it. And so that's the, the frame. Let's try it. Acceptable. Here's where I want to start. Let's say the class is how to be an effective human. First, could you define effective in that context? I don't know that we ever come away with our lives knowing how we've shaped the world, right? So you, you try to do things where you are, are radiating a positive impact on people and you're true to yourself and you, you feel okay about them. Now, maybe bad people tell themselves the same story, uh, but at the end of the day, you need to be open to some feedback from other human beings and adjust your course of action and change your points of view as you see more of the world. So and you hope you're effective. Oh, and this, by this definition, o openness leads to, is, is part of a definition of effectiveness. What, what else would go into, though, the word? If you think about what it means, you think of people you think of are, we were just talking about a few of them. If you think about what it is to be an effective human, what are some examples? The best predictor of effectiveness, I think, is determination. So you brought up Magnus. I've been studying the career of Johann Sebastian Bach lately. The productivity good too. of these people is incredible. If you take Bach's music, Forget about composing it, just to have written it out by hand, I don't think I could do in an entire lifetime. And he created some of human beings' most beautiful music of all time. So you have to be smart above a certain level, but I think smarts are usually overrated. Determination, I personally like openness and curiosity and a bit of weirdness in people. Yes, me you too. have to ask, in a sense, who are they performing for? And if it's just like their parents, their high school class, their guidance counselor, they might be effective, but I'm not that interested usually. So you want them to Box have- Box checking, determination to check boxes, not interesting to you. That's what you're talking about when you say those people, but also the fuel, right? The, the, uh, who they want to prove wrong or right is not that interesting to you. 
it should be internally driven, where they have their own vision and want to realize that above all else. And then I get more interested. And Bach clearly had that. He didn't even know he would be that famous. He didn't know there'd be a thing recorded music. He may not have even known that sheet music would become a worldwide market. He was playing for people in Eastern Germany. And is part of it stoking, stoking that determination, um, stoking the, because if you're just determined, you're just determined to be something, that's not enough. So is it being determined to do something that makes you feel a certain way or a certain sense of satisfaction for having shifted something and made it change? I think you have to be a synthetic enough thinker that you can pull together pieces of, you know, be it cinema, television, economics, chess, music, whatever, and put them together and see some future out there that other people can't see. And your vision of it might be quite hazy, but you're still running after that ball and you see it. Yeah, we were, I was talking about Murakami with someone, no surprise, the other day, and we were talking about how much he keeps the reader in mind and who he's doing it for. And I think that's part of it because when you say the thing about Bach playing for those audiences, I wondered whether you felt like the audience itself wanting to create an effect in the audience. Basically, is it only about creating this sound that hasn't been heard before, this music that satisfies something in me, or is it also, do you think, to be effective? I want to affect you. I want to change something in you. I want to maybe make you smile even. Is that part of it with somebody like that you would think of as effective? You know, when you write a book. I think Bach was composing first and foremost for God, then for himself, and he loved improvising and showing off for audiences. So it's overdetermined. A lot of the best creators, why they're doing it is overdetermined. Same with Magnus, same with Paul McCartney. Cinema, obviously, Stanley Kubrick, many other names we could pull out of the hat, but they have multiple motives and they work together. They stack, the motives, they stack. the motives stack in a way. And they stack so high, you don't even know which one is operating at the margin. And it might not matter then. That's right. In fact, those could start with wanting to prove the guidance counselor wrong. Of course, and often it does. So I like to look for people with overdetermined, stacked, mixed, multiple motives that work together. One thing you left out was, and uh, not that it's a mistake necessarily, but I noticed you didn't mention empathy. And I, I wondered, I, this was actually the question I had, which was given that definition of effectiveness, where might empathy fit in? Meaning, is it a tool? Is it a hindrance in decision-making? Uh, should one work on as one's becoming effective? Should one work on touching empathy at, at all? Uh, does, it, does it matter? What do, you, where do you, what do you think about that? I view empathy as overrated for these purposes, that a lot of the very top creators, they're so determined to see through their visions. They're weak in empathy. Look at the story of Michael Jordan running the Chicago Bulls. He was tough or listen to Denny Lane talking about what it was like to work with Paul McCartney and Wings. That was not an entirely pleasant experience. It's as if Paul had worked with John Lennon and everyone else had to meet that standard. And if they didn't, he was just gonna tell them what to do. Now that was how it should have been to be clear, but that is not exactly empathy. So and, and, I'm and not yet, that- And yet, you're a, what would you so, so what would you say is this, I have a couple questions about this empathy thing because you know who you're talking to, and you know that I know who Denny Lane is. And you know that many people my age wouldn't know who Denny Lane was, is. I, I saw them wings in concert. I understand stuff about that relationship, right? Some part of you 
you have the facility to pull many examples. You went with that one because you understood. And that's not purely an intellectual thing, right? There is empathy at play, meaning you're able to look a bit through my eyes to understand that I would understand that reference, right? Yes, but it's not caring about you. So again, in many top areas of performance, you see people neglecting their families, neglecting their friends, being very hard to work with. I just had lunch uh, with Nabil, and he was telling me he watched this Bob Dylan movie and the impression of Bob Dylan he came away with. And I think that's not universal, but quite common. I just wonder if Dylan has had to, because of actually it, uh, an enormous amount of innate empathy, if Dylan had to, had uh, structurally kind of put up road, roadblocks in a way, walls, so that, so that, that, that he wouldn't be led by, by empathy. I mean, you can't write Sheld from the Storm without, uh, yes, you can write Idiot Wind without empathy, but you can't really write Sheld from the Storm with, without empathy, right? And so you can't really write Sweetheart Like You, it's a brilliant, genius, uh, I think, you, you know, that song has layers and layers and layers, but you have to have empathy for both of the, the people and the supernatural, you know, all the things that are playing Sweetheart Like You, you have to have, I, I would argue, perhaps empathy. Or do you think you just have to be able to uh, intellectually understand uh, people? I think intellectually understand. But I think a lot of these top performers have had empathy, but they end up being manipulated. People want favors from them. People want to shirk. People want to ride off their coattails. People want to be in their entourage. And they have to get tough. You must see this in Hollywood many, many times over. These are not bad people. But what they have to do to live some semblance of a life is actually become pretty tough, all the more so for women in many cases. Uh, no argument there. But when, you, when I ask you effective and you go to Bach, in order to be an effective human by that standard, does the effectiveness have to be external accomplishment or can one be an effective human on a smaller stage by being a certain kind of spouse, parent, community member, and then is empathy valuable? Or is that not, is that just being a human, not being effective by your way of looking at the world? That's micro effective. It's very important. It's what most people in the world are and do. And for that, you need empathy. Absolutely. But do you think that there's a, do you think that's not, those roles are not significant? You said very important, but as you, as you say that, I'm wondering whether, if you really think it's very important. Well, it's well over 99% of our world. No, most, I know. most things are not Bach, Michelangelo, Paul McCartney, and Magnus Carlsen. So is the other important is maybe the better question. So we like to but, act yeah. out as if it is. But in fact, most lives would not be much worse off without those top creators. You mean most people walking around the earth? Given that we've arrived at the point where we're at, if there was no Michelangelo, they couldn't see the David in Florence they wouldn't be much worse off. They would have missed those moments of inspiration and the thrill, but actually their lives would be largely the same. When you look at the David, do you apprehend it as, because you're very good at calling bullshit on things, uh, you know, when you think something's overrated, I'm not asking the overrated and underrated question, that's your shtick, but when you look at uh, David, do you apprehend it in a way that it moves you, that its significance is, to your eyes, plainly, that in incredible. I think it's still grossly underrated that we as moderns <laughs> have a hard time getting into that Neoplatonic worldview that makes it as important as it truly was. 
and it holds for a lot of Michelangelo's work. It's very hard for us to appreciate it, and that's maybe why we haven't produced our own Michelangelo. And why do you think da Vinci is somehow more easy to be blown away by for most people? It's more secular. He was more of an inventor. So there's movie coming out, I think it came out last weekend, The Inventor. It's an animated life of Leonardo da Vinci. I suspect that's quite easy to put into movie form. A lot of it is very literal, what he did. The Mona Lisa is on so many shopping bags to its detriment. Michelangelo is three-dimensional. You have to be there. It is holier, more thrilling, and Michelangelo seems to have been more of an obsessive than Leonardo, who always was falling short, not fulfilling commissions, not doing what he was supposed to do, doesn't have that many paintings. Michelangelo doesn't have that many sculptures, but they took a lot more work than an individual Leonardo painting. So Leonardo was, in some funny way, a productivity failure, right? <laughs> That's great. One of the most productive humans who ever lived. Uh, but he was. If Michael Jordan were, you know, managing Leonardo da Vinci's career, he would have kicked his butt across the room like he did with Bill Wennington. I, I, when I watched the Jordan documentary, and I've read all the, obviously, everything ever written about him that I could get my hands on, I don't know that he was ultimately, yeah, it's, and it, obviously he, the world was served. He was served in certain ways. But you wonder, I wonder, does that single, that level of single-mindedness end up with someone becoming kind of a husk of um, a human? But sometimes. maybe we also need it in some way that humanity as a whole has to express these varied possibilities for us as a race to be fully human. And if MJ is part of that, even though it's a waste, like, do we really care that the Bulls won instead of moral significance? Of course not. If Utah had taken that series, fine by me, right? Jordan uh, punched the guy and disrupted the shot. Like, that was wrong, right? Ethically wrong. And he oh, got yeah. away with what it. What he did to what Brian Russell, right? you know, he moved, when he moved him out of the way to make That's that right. shot, of course. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, yeah, and we all just, um, look, I'm a guy who, when I, I wept when Tiger won the last Masters that, that he won. So there's something about that kind of ruthless pursuit of perfection that inspires us. And, but I don't know if that's not a weakness in me, meaning I don't know in, in both of, I don't know if that's not a weakness to be so captivated by people who are willing to kind of do anything that it takes to achieve. It is for me so inspiring. And yet sometimes I wonder, is that good that I feel that way as a result of watching those things? Maybe it's an optimal weakness. You've gotten a few things done yourself and you have your inputs and you might be able to look at any one of them as I could and say, gee, that one screwed up. Like when I was a kid, I used to like Bobby Fischer. What, did, what became of him and so on. But at the end of the day, you repurpose all these famous people for your own yes. reasons and they become part of you and what they are almost ceases to matter. They become the myth. They like become Harry myths. Grant, yeah. I mean, Harry Grant said this once. Everyone like wants to be... Cary Grant, but no one wants to be actually Cary Grant. <laughs> no, of course. Yeah, of course. And no, watching it and then the way one internalizes it, it becomes, for sure, they become these, mo they are these modern, modern myths. There's no doubt about it. And they're myths, stories, narratives we repurpose to drive ourselves. But then I think part of the, part of being human is uh, maybe looking at those drivers, then reminding oneself to go from a place of curiosity instead of a place of accomplishment, and that let the curiosity drive the next accomplishment as opposed to just a determination to find the next accomplishment. I think when, that, you're a kid, when you're a kid, you run across a few people 
who show you something is possible you didn't think was possible, and that changes your whole life. Like I met one guy, he had read a lot of books. I think I was 13, maybe 14. Just that a human could read so many books and understand them. I wouldn't have denied it if you had asked me, but the vividness of that had never occurred to me, and that changed my whole life. Were you already hyperlexic? Yes. Did you know that about yourself already? Not really. What does that mean? How could you have that superpower and not really know? You can know in the sense that you see yourself reading all the time and your friends are not reading, but you don't develop a framework for it. And as a result of meeting this guy, I developed a framework where, gee, I can spend the rest of my life reading these books and doing something with that knowledge. And I just never stopped after that moment. Yeah. Define hyperlexia, just in case some people in the audience don't know what that is. I don't know that I or anyone has a good definition, but typically it's something you're born with. And it often means that at a very early age, age two in my case, you can more or less spontaneously teach yourself how to read. And then you become a very fast, very avid reader for your whole life. And that's why it's called hyperlexia, like an extreme obsession with the written word. Yeah. You know, I'm not hyperlexic, but I was borderline dyslexic. And then um, in the summer between fourth and fifth grade, I taught myself to speed read. I couldn't really read well, and then I became a speed reader. And my mom's forgiving me these books. I read Tales of Fourth Grade Nothing. And then I read a book a night. I read a book a day, and I became the fastest reader. And I'm not like you, but I'm, uh, because I don't remember every single, I'm not, I don't have an eidetic memory. I don't remember every single word. No, I don't either, but you might be a hyperlexic. So they don't all learn at age two or three. I suddenly was able to just read very fast and remember most of it. And it was like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. But I, because I had such bad ADHD and school was hard, it was only for me. I couldn't do it with the history book. I could only do it with books I wanted to read. I'm the same way. I'm also in some form ADHD, and it has to be something I want to do, but I've learned how to take the ADHD and use it to propel me to the next thing and just keep on reading. That's all. So this is why you, I, now I understand, this is why you're willing to toss a book aside because if it's boring to you, that's like death, and you've got to toss it aside. And I'm not going to like it anyway. And Samuel Johnson, who was another yeah. hyperlexic, he actually no said dummy. This, that what a man you know, reads but does not want to read does him no good. Not a literal quotation, but that's the basic point. Oh, that's point. great. Right. I haven't read that. Um, but you need just internalize that emotionally. If you're reading it out of duty, maybe you have to do it, but otherwise just toss it away. Yeah, I, I do. I did, and it got me in a lot of trouble at various times in my life. Uh, But it's worked out okay. Yes, it's all worked out fine so far. Um, Switching gears slightly from empathy. On your podcast, I brought up impermanence, and I saw you light up a little bit. And I guess I'd ask it like this. Do you think we spend too much as, as people, generally, do we spend too much time or too little time pondering impermanence? I suspect, increasingly, that there's something more visceral about the arts from earlier centuries, and it's because those creators were confronted with death more often. Yeah, that's what I mean by impermanence. But yes, yes. I know you know that. Yeah. I don't know if that was good for their happiness. It probably <laughs> wasn't. But it made Bach, Velazquez, Mozart deeper. Some of these individuals died young. Mozart died, what, in his late 30s? Schubert, I think he was 28 when he died. So when you're in these worlds, you can be the victim. That's not great. But we moderns, with some exceptions, depending on your family history, but you tend to think of death as a thing that doesn't touch you until year whenever, and you put it off and you segregate it for most of your other thoughts and feelings. 
I think it makes life easier. You're more productive in many tasks, but you lose something. And not just your own impermanence, the imper like the idea that those we love... And uh, civilization itself may be more fragile than we would like to think. All those spirals, yes. And, and, and for me, I agree with you, the best art is hyper aware of our impermanence. So you think most people spend too little time understanding that, you know, I, Dave and I put this line and billions of my favorite line in the whole series is um, in the great expanse of time, we're already dead. And that notion, we spend too little time thinking about. There are Freudian tricks here, though. If you were to sit down and say, I'm going to think about death now, my suspicion is you would not end up effectively thinking about death in a way that would make you a deeper person. It would become part of your repression and denial and part of your superstructures that actually limit how much you think about death. So it's like trying to fall asleep or trying to be happy. If you approach it directly, oh, let's, let's think about death, uh, you end up with the opposite result. But, but isn't that what the mystics, the ones who are, let's say, one can be skeptical of whether anybody's truly a mystic, but when I read, say, Thich Nhat Hanh, I am reading somebody who, it's clear, gave a lot of thought to the meaning of death and what it means to live in the face of death. And I think not only did he gain from that, but sort of anyone who interacts with that gains from it and goes away thinking about what that means. Do you have a different experience with that kind of thing? I think some of it is the decline of religion. So in the West, there's less Christianity. So the notion of Christ crucified was much more central in earlier times. It's always reminding you of death in a way that's very socially structured and salient and hard to repress. Uh, just life expectancy being much lower, I think, is the critical factor. And then death being more public. You would have wakes where they put out the dead body. Everyone sees the dead body. And if you think of a TV show like The Sopranos, death is in the culture, not just because they're mobsters, but death is in the culture at many levels in a way that most people growing up today would not experience the equivalent of. Jackie's so dying from the first episode. So you know Jackie's dying and he's, yes. the most, he's described as the most vital person. And then he doesn't even want it. That for me, yes, he doesn't even want to hear the news that's going on because he's already on his way. And Tony has to grapple with that. And it's part of the anxiety and the whole thing. Yeah. You right. need the impact of death on you to be overdetermined in the way we talked about earlier for it really to work. And again, just chewing the fat with your buddies about death, I don't think gets you very far. But uh, the, the iconography, the religious iconography, particularly Christian religious iconography with the promise of salvation after death, do you really think that that invites the kind of contemplation of impermanence that we're talking about or does it invite something else? I think it's the death part of that story that's the most believable. <laughs> Well, no, I know that you think it's the most believable you do, but what is it? Say? I, I, what is it you wear around your neck? A cross, right? Which isn't, is it, I'm asking you, you know more about this than I do. Isn't it though to remind you that since that's coming, you better get your salvation in, in order for the, you know, all that time after. But people don't actually do that. So people in earlier times, they were not more moral Arguably, they were somewhat less moral. They beat their kids more often or, or whatever else. And I think the real impact of a lot of Christianity may depend on which Christianity, of course, or which other religion, but it's to remind people of death. And also in earlier times, we were much closer 
two just incredibly horrible, terrible world wars. Those have now left the historical memory of almost everyone alive today. Even an event like the Holocaust, if you poll kids in junior high school, what's the Holocaust? Remarkably low percentages of them seem to know what it is. I don't even know if I believe all those numbers, they're so low. But when I was in high school, that would not have been the case. Almost everyone would have yeah, known. Yeah, you're only a couple years older than me, and that's true. Um, when, four years older. When, Well, I, you know, this. Have you, you've seen this meme about the Roman Empire, which obviously you would pass. Uh, you would answer yes. You've thought of it recently. You know this meme of where course I do. I, I wrote so, a blog post on this, right. but I don't think I, of it on purpose. I think of, of it reactively. Of course, it's thrust in my face all the time. It's, you can't not think about it all the. You, of course, first of all, ever since like I just think of uh, Randy Newman's you know end of an empire is messy at best. Like that song is so great and I, it's in my head all the time and it's the funniest song about our declining society and its direct parallels and so you, you're, you're always thinking about it. But if you ask, the truth is, and then the joking one is, you know, that's if you ask men and if you ask women, it's something else. But this is true and it's no joke. You know, if you ask a Jewish person, even an atheist Jewish person, how often they think of the Holocaust, I promise the answer is daily. It's daily. So it's amazing to me that people, you know, we think about who would hide us. And I, I once tweeted that and I, the response I got from people all over the place was, oh my God, I thought I was the only one who thought but like on a weekly basis, uh, if I meet somebody, I'm like, would that person hide us? You just think about that if you're a Jew, I think, in some way. Uh, so it's amazing to me that you say people who aren't don't even know at all about it. I'm pretty sure it's true. You know, my wife is Jewish and her parents in the Soviet Union then, they literally escaped from the Holocaust by physically moving out of where they were to Central Asia. And that's a very vivid memory for them. They were kids, but like 10, 11 years old. You're not yeah. going to forget that. Yeah. No, one of my favorite podcast episodes I had is with this guy, Paul Heyman, who's this professional wrestling person, his parents were survivors. And when he talked about why that, what that did to him, it, it's, it's important to know about these things and, and remember them. But not just that one, you know, it's important to look at all these instances of humans being brutal to other humans, isn't it? To remind ourselves of her, as we were talking about before, of Herzog's way of looking at bears, because newsflash, Grizzly Man's not really about bears, uh, right? right. <laughs> I mean, you said you love it too. It's one of my favorite documentaries. And it's not just about bears. It's about human foolishness. It's about self-deception. It's about just being blind to how the world actually works. That. And it's about nature. And it's about us not understanding how close we are. And how we're part of certain it. circumstances changed, right? We're this bears. When, when everybody, yes, when everybody was uh, passing around Jared Diamond's uh, b book, it, it became a cliche. It's one of those books everyone had on their night table and nobody read. But if you actually read it um, and understood what he was saying about resource wars, you would immediately understand how close we are to being fucking bears out in the, out in the woods, right? But I think in the America of today, 2023, it may be changing yet again. But there's a sense of people growing up in more protected environments, not being told unpleasant things. Uh, my sister once said to me, half in jest, but maybe only half in jest, I'm not sure. She said, it's a real shame kids don't get beat up coming home from school anymore. And I mean, it's great that they don't, but it's also tricky. So that's the world we live in. We take offense over such small things. And I think for people who are older, this seems extremely bizarre. For people who are younger, Perhaps we seem callous or are callous. It's tricky because 
the reminder of our frailty, the reminder of the capacity of, of humans in certain circumstances to treat other humans brutally. If it's out of remove, even if we can watch it on TV, has, although it's a net positive, if life's easier, the negative is it doesn't prepare one for certain kinds of difficulties. That kind of what your wife is saying? Sister, but sister, the, is that kind of what your sister's saying? I, I think so. The notion that we have social mores that it, relative to death elevate these other harms so high, I believe is quite unprecedented in human history, as far as I can tell. And it's, if not unique to certain large pockets of existence in the United States of America, the thing you're talking about certainly doesn't exist all over the world of all course the time, not. even in the same time period. Maybe Denmark, Canada, a few other places, That's what Australia, I'm saying. Not, yeah. but, but there are plenty well of off safe countries, right? Not in India, not in Thailand, not in Bangladesh. In cities in those places? I don't think so. You'd know better in than very I. Very small You've... numbers. But, you know, you go to Mumbai, there are wealthy people, there are billionaires, but mostly life is tough. And there are people who die in the gutter, and you see it. Talk about the difference between tourism and traveling in that way, meaning I think many of us uh, can be tourists in those places and really just have a different American experience. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between traveling and tourism? If I go to London or Paris, which I do pretty often, and I always enjoy it, I don't literally have to go, but it's not for me different than going to New York. And I grew up in New Jersey. Yeah been coming here since I was 10 years old. But there are other places, maybe even some parts of London and Paris, that cause you to reevaluate your ideas about the world and who you are and what will happen next and what other people think. And we should spend more time going to those other places. So I did trips this summer to Kenya and to Sri Lanka. And those were more rewarding trips, frankly, than my trips to London or Paris because, in part, those places are in worse shape. You're confronted with more of human history somehow and cultural differences. People there don't think like here. I was talking to one of my drivers in Sri Lanka, and he just said to me, I don't like the people of the other religions. Now, Sri Lanka is a country that's been through a civil war rooted at least partly in differences of opinion on religion. He was quite upfront about it. It took me aback, but I, I mean, I've been in enough places I wasn't shocked by this. Well, how did you parry that? What'd you say? What'd you ask next? I asked him what he thought w would come for the future of Sri Lanka. And he was greatly concerned. And he feels his people, who the Sinhalese, that's the majority group, were facing a lot of different threats from India, from the Tamils, from China, and that they had to be tough. I can understand that. It's very far from my point of view, but in, in some way it isn't. I'm a, a loyal American citizen. My government is a military power. It's pretty tough. It's succeeding at what he wants his government to do. So it's easy for me to kind of peer out from behind the curtain and disapprove. Oh, he doesn't like the other religions. Please be tolerant. Because well, you can sub religion for a lot. You can sub in the word religion. At, yes, for us, that's... And anathema, that seems horrendous, right? 
to judge. But we, you could sub in lots of things that we as Americans would sub in for, well, we don't approve of X, Y, or Z. And the point is to try to understand and not to condemn. And how does, yes, how does that reevaluation, what's the, what's the way in which the practice of that reevaluation happens for you? Meaning, yeah, you get a thought or you, is there a moment that you, I know you write every day, but is there a moment that you write just for yourself? Is there a moment that you take a certain kind of stock of that kind of thing and, and um, consciously work on it to affect your, you know, constantly evolving, ordered way that you look at the world? Or is it just an, in, it happens through kind of an instinctive chain reaction? It's when I either write or talk to people that I process things. If same, I'm in the, yeah, same. If Me. I'm in the shower, I get nothing done mentally. It's hopeless. I'm a shower idiot. Me, that's hilarious. That's the title of your next book, Shower Idiot. Yes. You but, ever have people say, I got this great idea in the shower? It's like, how does your brain work? That's so strange to me. Well, no, I can get a good idea in the shower for something I'm, I'm writing. Meaning if I'm in the middle, if I'm writing Maybe, something, yeah. right, you can, uh, for sure. Uh, if I'm in the shower and I'm writing, if I, I'm in the mode, right, I can totally, in a way, I'm taking a walk. That's incredible, for, 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 uh, incredibly productive. But not if it's not sort of like, I'm working on this thing right now. I'm working on this thing. And I need to step away to just take a shower or walk or run or bike. But, um, but I know what you mean about just, yes, if I interact with someone and I don't do something with it and I'm just in the shower, nothing. And then the moment you would ask what happened this morning, I start talking, 25 realizations and insights happen. I can't, that's the same for you. And sometimes my wife asks me, she'll go, Tyler, what are you thinking? And I'll say, I'm just resting. To her, that answer is absurd. Like, you must be thinking something. But it's like, no, I am the shower idiot. I am just resting. I can't make any progress. I'm such a shower idiot. Well, for ADD people, I think sometimes what that means is um, it's not like it's just a, a quiet hum in, 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 in your brain. What it is is that it's, it's a lot of uh, quick, meaningless thoughts that run through that are distractions or are not... There's no valiance to them. There's nothing if even that, yeah. interesting about them at, um, at all. When you think about things, like you said, uh, you do think it's useful to understand death on some level. Who do you, and I understand that you interact with art, and I want to get to that, and I understand how much you watch and movies and how much you read fiction and, I, I get, and listen to music and what it does to you. But... Um, is there a system of thought you lean on to think about this stuff? Uh, if it's re religious or semi-religious or, um, believe me, I'm not gonna use the word spiritual with you, but who do you read? Like, I like Thich Nhat Hanh and I like Sadhguru. I like to, even though I'm not a Buddhist, um, I'm not Zen, but I really enjoy reading their philosophical systems of thought about how to be in the face of death. I'm wondering, do you read anything about that that's modern? Uh, I would consider Thich Nhat Hanh to be modern. Or do you only like to read really old things about that or biblical things about that? Like, how do you... I'm non-religious. Yes. I was brought up non-religious. What has influenced me the most reading is actually the Hebrew Bible. I'm not even Jewish by background in any way. But to me, that's the most profound text. Buddhism, I think, has a lot of truth in it, but I've never intersected with it at all as an influence. You don't read it? Like, have you no, not I read do. those people? But You've... it doesn't do much for me. What, so say more about and, that. What do you mean it doesn't do much for you? I nod my head and I say, that sounds pretty true. I like that. That's good. And I put it down and it, 
it doesn't change myself. So the myself. idea of detachment, while you can understand how that could serve somebody, you, it doesn't make you want to say, how would that serve me? No, I feel very detached already. I'm like, yes, <laughs> like I can give you <laughs> lessons. <laughs> right, in, in non-attachment, I should say, not detachment. Yeah. But you know what I mean. Yes. Um, non- so I'm on board, but I feel like I've already bought the product. You feel you're there already. I mean, no one is you're in an, the extreme Tyler sense. says he's an enlightened being. But, um, but the prodding sense in both Judaism and Christianity is a bigger addition to me than the detachment. The prodding sense, do something. Do something. Here are the laws. Follow them. Or, or, don't, or choose not to, I would say. But yes. yes. Or here's the story of Christ. You know, make of it what you will. But my goodness, what an incredible story. Huh. That's fascinating. That that, the structure of that the box you like grappling inside that box that's right and that's novel to me again as a non-believer non-practicer yeah me i am too right i i find well let's say then in that tradition like um does victor frankel's answer resonate for you which is similar you know sad guru talks about that you can only master this in the face of all this stuff so you should that's what is possible right to control all this stuff internally does Victor did, did does Victor Frankl sort of uh, uh, approach it that make sense to you, or is that also an innate way that you just approached the world before even intersecting? Great books, that? zero resonance. They bore me, but they're phenomenal, right? They're no. some of my wife's favorite books. You don't I have to say people. they're phenomenal. No, I mean, no, they are, are phenomenal they? because from other people's perspectives, I can see they bring this notion of meaning and how you deal with tragedy to other people in a highly effective manner. I know you've read it, but did did Siddhartha move you at all? No, to me it was too juvenile, but I loved Glass Bead Game oh, me by too. Hesse. Oh, me too. That's one of my favorites oh, of all time. Oh, that's an incredible book. Yes. Right, the idea is being more, it, that was written for a different, um, well, he was a different person and it was written for a different And it's more computational audience. somehow. It's quite modern, way ahead of its time. It's very 2023, if you think about large language I'm gonna models. read that book again, I love I that I am too, book. it's in my I bio. I love that book. I love him, I read him a ton. It's weird, in a certain way, Murakami has a certain rhythm that reminds me of Hesse sometimes. There's Murakami is a great synthetic thinker, by the way. He gets jazz, he gets running, he gets science fiction, American detective fiction, American culture, Japanese culture, classic novels, and he puts them all together in a way no one else does. I agree. It's why he's my favorite living writer. Yeah. And it's music. Yes. And it's music. Of course. It's an incredible, uh, it's a stunning achievement. It's and it's like, very alive. Yes, it's so alive. But also I would say he's, well, he's exactly what you talk about, right? I mean, when you read, when you read what I talk about when I talk about running, it is nothing if not exactly the, what you're talking about, about determination, about sacrificing absolutely everything for generating this work for some reason, right? I'm gonna eat this fish, I'm gonna have this tiny bit of rice, I'm gonna run, I'm gonna take care of my body so that I can produce this work that's so important and what's implied is important for you too, right? Speaking of running, you should interview Lazarus Lake. I just did a podcast with him. He was phenomenal. He's the ultra marathon guy. Please connect us, I would love to. I will. My first question was, what is it a person learns running 100 miles that they don't learn running 26 miles. Did it make you want to run 100 miles? No. <laughs> no, you know, Murakami, when Murakami talks about running 100 miles, as he does, and I don't know if you ever read Lawrence Block's Walking Book, the book about when no. Lawrence Block was in, you know, Larry's a great, for me, he's a great writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I often say Murakami's my favorite writer 
uh, living writer under 80 because that way I can protect Larry's status. Uh, but Larry's books, he was an super endurance athlete too, walking late in life. And when he tell, writes about it, it is incredible and also about work. It's also all about the same thing. It's why he wrote 150 novels. It's inspiring, but I never, um, five miles, if I can run five miles, that's, I'll get back to it. I haven't in a long time, that's enough. often will bring up art you're an economist you're highly rational no i'm not highly rational but please go you on. express yourself in highly rational ways okay sure you have the capacity to speak highly rationally right uh, it's different than reasonably it's being different than being reasonable <laughs> right but you have the capacity to speak rationally and you have a capacity to think rationally in ordered ways right and yet the way you the way you interact with the arts is I feel kindred in a certain way even though we think quite differently in lots of ways and I wonder what if it stirs you differently as an older person than when we were younger and I wonder what you get emotionally because to me that artwork that, that all that art has a lot to do with empathy as for to me or it draws out one's empathy as one relates to it and intellect. And what do you get out of uh, that? You know, when you see Itumama Tambien, what, how are you processing something like that? I'm selfish. I observe other people as they get older or develop, they become stupider. To me, that's one of the worst fates is to become stupider. I want to do things where I don't become stupider. Most politics, whether you're right or wrong, it makes you stupider. Because the people who are wrong are very wrong and very stupid. And you can say they're wrong, they're stupid, you're right, but that makes you stupider too over time. When I engage with the arts, I hardly ever become stupider. Mostly I become smarter. There's some empathy in there, but I think on the, the relative scheme of things, I have more of a puzzle approach, problem-solving approach to understanding artworks. And it's a way of exercising my mind that I greatly enjoy, and it's vital emotionally. And it's inexhaustible, and it's a great way to learn history. And I just want to keep on doing it. And you can talk to other people about it. When you say smarter, often you talk about the fact that we over-index smarts. Yeah, I do too. That's how I know that other people do. Yeah, I do. I but really I want, do. I want to over-index on my own smarts and not become stupider. Well, this is one way in which I'm not actually rational. I wonder if when you say, though, that we over-index on smarts. I, I've heard you say it. I know what you're saying is there are other characteristics one ought to look at. They're very important. But I also wonder if it has to do with your internal working definition of smarts might be slightly different than what you're talking about when we say we over-index. And I, I, That's true. So talk a little bit about that. For me, openness plays into smarts. I agree. Ability to have multiple perspectives, be a synthetic thinker, and always be working on figuring out the next thing. Now, there are plenty of brilliant people who may or may not be smart in those ways. On average, I find those people less interesting. They still can be quite interesting. Yeah, but, and it's interesting, too, that um, a really, really, really smart person who's quite wrong is a stunning thing to behold. Yes. And not as uncommon as you might think, right? The miracle of Twitter is it's shown us how common it is. 
and I wonder sometimes about Time Horizon, like one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And of course, we're all limited in our ability to um, evaluate how smart someone is just by how smart we are, right? You can tell someone smarter than you, but sometimes you can't tell the order of magnitude of how much smarter they are than you. But someone I would say is one of the smartest humans, kind of acknowledged that way. But I think this person is willing to think in 200-year chunks instead of in decades. And I wonder sometimes if, if that's almost too smart for not only his own good, but our own good, because we have like uh, the ability to not care about pain now to get to that place 200 years from now is hard sometimes to sort of like grapple with. I don't think one can be substantively smart about 200 years from now. Say more about that. It's so difficult to predict things. So I can go back being 61 years old, and I started having opinions about things when I was 12 or 13, and some turned out to be right, some turned out to be wrong. Obviously, if I had been older when I was 12, some of them would have been better. But you get this immense sense of your own intellectual fragility, because on a lot of them, I would not have predicted any better. I didn't think the Soviet Union would fall, one simple example. I did think about it. Right. I was like, well, this will fall right. in 100 years, but not in my lifetime. And at the end of that all, you have to be pretty humble about yourself now. And to say, well, like now I figured it out. I mean, that's silly, right? You haven't. No, none of us have. You, no one very, you know, if someone on earth has figured it out, you know, they're one of those. They're keeping it a very good secret. And they're not, in, they're not on Twitter, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not on Twitter either anymore, but yes. Um, so maybe, maybe it's me. Um, but it, it, is, it is not me. I have a brief uh, biological um, inter interlude, which is um, like your superpowers are a little bit X-Men like. And, you know, the X-Men hid their superpowers because they at certain points they got they were ostracized for them. And I haven't really heard you talk about I know you were chess champion. We were young and stuff, but I haven't heard you talk much about when you recognize these aspects of yourself. And yes, you had somebody who'd read examples. Was it hard for you at times to be operating on a different plane, say, than most of your classmates? Did that, and, and, and did it affect you emotionally? I feel the world has treated me well. Yes, of course. Very low in bitterness. I think I was fortunate when I was a, a young nerd. I was quite tall for my age. I'm not tall for my age now, but I was my current height, very young. So I was not the first person picked on. I think when I hit puberty, it made me miserable that I didn't have girlfriends till I was older. That sure. was by far the biggest thing. But the rest, I feel the, the world's been great to me. Yeah, well, you, and I, I get that. So you never felt, if you felt like an outsider, you never felt, uh, even if you knew I don't belong in that group, like they're interested in a bunch of things I'm not interested in, I'm interested in a bunch of things they're not. I think often, even someone who feels that way, kind of still wishes they were part of it in no, some way. No, never had that. So never. you never felt that way. Literally never. It's like, there are all these books I want to read. I can listen to the Beatles. I can, whatever, with sports. You can Always. talk to older people. And you, I imagine there were older course, people you could talk to. Of course, I had a lot of older to. friends. Me too. I was growing up in the golden age of cinema. Every week there were things to see, see again. It was phenomenal for me to like think, oh, I don't want to be seeing... Godfather or Star Wars again, I want to hang out with yeah. Johnny. It's like, no way. 
Keeping your so keeping your own. You were always good at keeping your own company. But I always had friends too. Small, right. tightly knit group, but never never was lonely in my life. So you never felt like a freak for your intellect. No, no. Always had nerdy friends. That's really powerful. That's yeah. a really great. I have thing. had a lot of luck growing up in New Jersey. Bergen County is pretty good for finding other nerdy friends, even though you're not on the football team or whatever. When did you first uh, come across like Springsteen's stuff as a New Jersey kid? Because well, one has to form an opinion on Springsteen when one is in their teens, right? And I did. So 1965, my sister, who was two years older, she bought Born to Run. But you were three in 65, right? No, no sorry, 75. Okay. The album yeah, comes that out in 75. Yeah. I'm 13. She buys the album. Yes. I hear it. I think, this is amazing. And I'm not driving yet. Once I started driving, I had a deeper understanding. So I was very much into Springsteen at the time. That said, I'm disillusioned now. I don't love the later work. And the earlier work while some of it holds up quite well, I don't hear new things when I listen to it again. None of it. You don't. You know, unlike Bob, unlike Bob, you don't. You don't hear. So I do, but uh, I still get a lot out of listening to a lot of Bruce. I still um, enjoy it. If I hear Born to Run, Jungle Land, uh, E Street Shuffle album, even up to the River, a lot of it sounds quite good to me still. But no, I don't hear new things in the music. Even Whereas, Nebraska. A little bit in Nebraska, but I, I don't listen to Nebraska that much. But Beatles, which I've heard way more than Bruce, I still hear new things in the songs all the time. Yeah, whereas I acknowledge completely, as you do with some of those books, Victor Frankl, I acknowledge all of the Beatles' mastery. I know it all by heart. I can play it. I, you know what I mean? I can play some of it on the guitar. Like, I'll get it. But they're not my... F I like all... All, so many of the things that come from the Beatles, but the Beatles were never my personal, you know, Bob way more for me than the Beatles. Not, I'm not saying just to them. I'm actually saying this to you listening here. I'm, I'm not in any way saying you're wrong about the Beatles. You're right about the Beatles. If you're listening, they're the most important band in the history of modern music. There's no doubt about it. They're just not my personal favorite. I mean, this is nothing could get you more emails than like the perception that you, maybe you were slagging on the Beatles. I'm not slagging on the Beatles. Beethoven has been my other personal favorite. Is he greater than Bach? I'm not so sure. But it registered with me earlier on in a big, big way. And how did you go chase that down pre-internet? Would you go to record stores? Do you have a favorite record store? I would go to record stores all the time, buy used records. Me too. Uh, later CDs. But I would go to concerts too, as much as I could. First at the Kennedy Center, it would depend where I would live. But to hear Beethoven is not that hard a thing, right? And I just would take every opportunity. I took, I drove up to New York City once, I think I was 17, uh, to hear Horowitz play at Carnegie Hall, uh, Lincoln Center rather. Uh, and he played Beethoven, Opus 101. How could I say no to that? And I like scalped the ticket for $60, which back then well, that's was a lot, lot of no, money. Of course, a lot of money. Wow, really? Yeah. And By I'll never forget or with that. a friend? By myself. There's yes. no one else to do that one So with. that is a great thing to do. I will say I love going to some special music thing by myself. Movies Absolutely. too. Absolutely. Movies by a, yourself. I love to go to movies by myself. If I can't, if someone, if, and, and in fact, if I can't find the right person to go with to a movie or a concert. Better yourself. I will go myself. If I can't find the person who I know will approach it, they don't have to approach it with reverence, but will approach it with openness, curiosity, availability and even better if they love the thing or they're ready i will 
I love going alone nine o'clock in the morning to a movie and also to a concert. I, Robert Cray, I saw alone um, in I've the city. I've seen him alone. I've seen him three times with my wife, but also alone. Well, we're, let's go together uh, yes, sometime. Um, yes. I, yeah, you got to see a living legend who's to, uh, uh, when they are around. Absolutely. I, I Buddy Guy, I did the same thing. Incredible, yeah. I mean, nothing like that seeing Buddy Guy. But seeing Cray close up alone, I got to sit in the end of the front row because I was a solo ticket. And I got to really watch him play guitar and sing. And it was like, oh, that guy is who he is for a reason. He's that good. If it's general admission and I'm going alone, I am first in line, or at least in the first three. I don't care. I bring a book, I bring my iPad, whatever, I'm there. I'm have, getting the best seat. We have that in common. I want to go alone and I want to go sit there and really get to see the thing that I'm going to see. Museums are great to go to alone too. And I'm going to MoMA tomorrow alone. What is your strategy for a big museum? Like, let's say you're somebody who is interested. You don't really feel like you know that you get it all the time. You um, feel when you're lectured out about art, it brings up like the you want to put up a, uh, you know, a, um, a stiff arm. So, but, but you want to go. Like, I used to go and sit in front of um, the Eve Klein painting at MoMA. I would just go sit there sometimes with a journal. No expectations. I would just sit there. There was something about it. I didn't know why. That color, it just drew me. I would go sometimes and just sit. And I'd go, I don't have to look at anything else today. I can just go to that. And I would just sit there and try to just like feel what I felt. But what do you think the right museum strategy is? Depends what you're starting from. If it's me, I'll just look at everything and typically feel I know a lot about most of it to begin with. Because you've studied it. Right. And been to the museum before, in fact, usually multiple times. Hard to find a museum that is pretty well known that I haven't been to before, actually. And when you're traveling, you'll go... All the time. Whatever I can. A couple times in the trip. Absolutely. You might go to the same museum. And what are you doing when you're there? Are you lingering over certain things? Are you waiting to see what grabs you that day? Do you have an agenda going in? Not usually. If there's a special exhibit, I'll go see it. That becomes de facto my agenda. But I'll try to look at everything. I look at a lot of things pretty quickly. But at any phase in my life, there'll be a bunch of things I'm looking at more carefully. And that just varies. But what I recommend for most people is treat museum going more like shopping. Almost everyone's good at shopping. So go into a room and just ask yourself, if I could steal one of these paintings, it's not even shopping, it's thievery, which one would I take home and try to figure it out and become active rather than passive? Which one could I buy? That's really great. Forget yeah. steal, right? When you throw, I think your first thing is even better because most people, maybe people are uncomfortable with the idea of stealing or they'll start thinking about value. But if it's, which one of these could I hang? And then go to auction home. houses where they're on display. You see the estimates. Always look at the estimate. Like, is that worth whatever? And have an opinion. Or why is it worth whatever? Right. Why do other people think it's worth whatever? And just have an opinion about the price and you will enjoy it more. How often do you do that? Go to an auction? Oh, uh, whenever they show, basically. So I'm in New York. You'll go to Sotheby's? They don't always have things out to see. Or if it's wines that are out, I don't go, right? But if they have, typically May and November, or in London, if they have stuff out, I always go see it in New York. Absolutely. Just want to take a look. Do you go to galleries? Of course. But I like the auction houses better. They have more. It's a bigger display. Uh, the prices, or at least the estimates, are always there to be seen. When there's a little red dot, price available on request, it's like, oh, you pikers. I'm not going to ask about a bunch of things and trouble them when I probably am not going to buy it. I'm not going to buy it, yeah. Tyler. But to really think about the prices at Sotheby's and Christie's, to me, is a joy. And I think a lot more people enjoy it than museums. And it's a great entry point to museums. 
I'd say one of the things that I think I might have been vaguely aware of about the possibility of becoming somewhat accomplished in, in the arts was this idea that it might make it easier to be able to have conversations with people that I wanted to talk to. I, I very much wanted to be able to reach out to people who were fascinating to me, pre-podcast even, right? And it's probably, it was really age, of course you want to be able to support your family, of course you want to be able to do your work, those are the primary drivers. But I will say, I was pretty conscious of like, I want to be able to, if I really have a strong take on something, have an outlet where I could, I could write about it and people might see it, there might be a way I could communicate. Was being famous, having the ability to kind of, that, that one does when, when, when one has sort of done the things you've done, was that conscious on your part? I want this, I want to be well known. I wrote a book about 20 years ago called What Price Fame? Right. On how people become famous. Uh, before you were famous? Before I was famous, but the book helped make me famous because the book came out exactly when Diana died. Wow. And I got a lot of media attention just because of Diana. People didn't necessarily read the book, but it was a book you could talk about because it covered some of the issues behind the Diana story. Uh, and Andy Warhol once said, the best thing about being famous is you get to meet other famous people. But it's true. It is true. Yeah. So you were talking about the mechanism by which one becomes famous. That doesn't necessarily mean that you no, I thought about set all yourself on that. So you did. You wanted all of this. Well, all of it is a tricky way of putting it. On net, I wanted it. It's not all a blessing. What's the downside for you? There's less privacy. Yes. There's more abuse. Uh, again, I feel I've got the abuse it. you care. So, so yeah, when I go to Marginal, I love your blog. It's incredible. I catch up every week on all of it. I don't read it all every day, but I get there. I read everything you write um, on there. All the links I check out, the whole thing. And the community's by and large great, but you know, there are mean fucking people on there too. Absolutely. Does it hit you? Not, not that much, but it's still a negative. Why then? If it doesn't hit you, why is it a negative? It's just another thing to deal with and having some negativity injected into your life. Like, what's the upside there? And as Maybe it, it, the upside is a thick skin in it, that sense. Right. Spares you from That's things worse. That's your Jocko good. You're good from Jocko is that. Is that exactly. Is that uh, thicker skin is good. So even that is probably a net gain. But look, it's not fun. But, but is it also people deciding what you stand for in a way that your views, the nuances of your views get flattened. Correct, as and, they do with everyone. But that's frustrating. I, I believe that's frustrating, and I wonder if that's frustrating to you. You, you take such pains to, to spell out your, your views. Yes. And, well, I would say even specifically, okay, we have to, before we're done, I have to get to this, which is, it seems to me that um, you've devoted a decent amount of your energy to understanding libertarianism. Right. Do you feel that most people who are critical of libertarianism understand what it is by your own definition? I mean, certainly none of them have read Locke. Certainly a, a 5% of them have read Locke, right? But, uh, and understand capital L liberal. Like mo most of them have never even fucking dealt with any of that. But right. taking, that, assuming, taking that out of it, right? Do you think most people's working definition of what one might be after with that, with libertarianism is, is accurate and how does it does it square with your definition the libertarians themselves get worse and worse so it's hard to say in yeah. a sense 
the intolerant critics have ended up being fairly correct. Yes, that's what I was wondering what you'd think about that. But I feel I, maybe I suffer a bit being in the middle of it. But like overall, I feel media has treated me pretty fairly. Yeah, but no, but say more about because because like I have blog commentators, they'll attack me every day for writing a Democrat blog, right? Which is absurd, as you know. Of like, course, I'm not a, a Democrat. I'm not a Republican, but like I'm not in the Trump camp at all. So I'm like a Democrat blogger. You're a philosopher. You're an economist, a behavioral economist, economist, a philosopher um, about and 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 look. You know, we all grew up, we grew up reading a lot about utopian socialism, right? And then I've often thought there's this idea, there's this utopian libertarianism. But that is, it turned out in America now, as you're saying, very hard to effectualize that. Not democratic with a capital D, but democratically, right? So where do, do you still consider yourself a libertarian? Or is it a utopian libertarianism that you kind of wish we could somehow live in. The latter. When I'm with other libertarians, they never think I'm a libertarian. But that said, if you send me to a random conference in London, Tokyo, wherever, and there's a hundred people in the room, and you ask, like, who are the five most libertarian in the room? Like, I'm usually one of the five. The five what? Most libertarian. If you had to name three things for me to read, uh, that would make me understand why you gravitated toward libertarianism. What would those three things be? My own book, Stubborn Attachments. And it's a short book. I have that book. It's literally next to my bed right okay. now. Unopened, but there. To be read next. Literally, it's in its plaid. It comes in like a, it's in its wrap. It's in its wrap. I have it from, I have it ready to go. Marginal Revolution, which you read. And then my podcast, the notion that truth is fundamentally dialogical is a continental philosophy idea is is essential to me and you you do a podcast Obviously too you know to this and you know mine and but what other but um so those are your works on this subject yeah but what i have the chance works? to write and create like what i think is best i can do so i'm not going to recommend someone else uh, no but do what because they form help form your thoughts like right. so what else helped form your thoughts about this stuff meaning i've read Locke, uh but what well, what? Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek, the classics of market economics. A lot of people have read those. They're not. Did up it to talk date. about the? In, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, does it talk about the interpersonal aspects of it? Sometimes, yeah. Rudolf Rocker was a great libertarian. See, I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. He's like a left-wing libertarian, very cosmopolitan. What would be a book? Uh, nationalism and culture. Great. Tyler Cowen, man, your books are are really fascinating. Your podcast is really as high up as, as it can be in, in, in my uh, estimation. And I really love interacting with the blog. You can find Tyler in all these places. Like uh, you can find him on the social medias. Are you on Instagram or no? Uh, technically, but I don't do it. So he's on X? I'm on X, at Tyler Cowan, Conversations with Tyler, Marginal Revolution, and just Googling my name works for a whole lot of it. Tyler Marginal Cowan. Revolution is great. You can't find me on X anymore. I'm still like docked there, locked, because I don't want someone to take my name but um you can find me in all the other places and uh soon on on tyler's podcast thanks for coming and talking to me today man this was really fun my pleasure thank you thanks everybody see you next time